Welcome everyone to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in tech. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. For those new to the show, we have three simple goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We want to highlight the different paths people take in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Today's guest has a long history of building tech companies and holding down roles like CEO and CTO. After graduating with a degree in electronics and communications engineering, he promptly went into private practice as a psychotherapist before returning to the tech field and adding a long string of founder titles to his resume. Over the years, he's built web design companies, digital agencies, sales and tech training companies. He's worked for the likes of GitHub and General Assembly, as well as a variety of smaller firms. As if building companies isn't enough, he's also an active community builder, public speaker, and a fellow podcaster. Please welcome to the show, Peter Bell. Peter, great to have you on the show. Grant, thanks so much for having me. Doing my usual research, which is primarily, as I like to call it, LinkedIn stalking a guest, I'm pretty sure you win the prize for having started and ran the most companies in the tech field for anybody I've had on the show. So why don't we kick things off and have you give us a, a tour of those highlights, if you will. There was one small detail, which is you said I graduated with a degree in electronic and communication systems engineering. Actually, I didn't. I quit three months before graduating. And the reason for that, it's kind of the cockiness you only have at 21. But I looked around, I said, look, I'm doing fine with this degree thing, but I don't want to work for any company dumb enough not to hire me without a piece of paper. I'm not sure that it was the right choice in retrospect or that I would give that as a recommendation to someone. Turns out it was particularly problematic when I was trying to get a visa. I grew up in the UK. I'm now an American citizen. And uh, the one thing that governments are is pedantic and dumb. So that was probably not the best choice. But it sent me off on an adventure. I wanted to be the next Tony Robbins. I started psychotherapy practice and then figured out that sales and psychotherapy are fundamentally the same practice, just with different payment mechanisms. Do you want to lose your phobia? Do you want to have a photocopier? It's kind of the same uh, set of processes in terms of engaging with and communicating with people. So said it created a sales training company, built an ad agency, and I brought that over to the States, but I couldn't stay away from tech. So about six years after leaving college, I had these clients and I was doing like a small full service ad agency for people in the oil field services industry in Houston, Texas. And I started building calculators for salespeople to show how their shaker would use less oil than the next one or uh, trade show tools so that you could create touch screens with trade show booths. And so I, I went out and bought myself a copy of Visual Basic back when you had to, to buy software to program in. Ran that for a number of years, which was great. Then I really got excited about writing software that wrote software. I was like, imagine if you could build back then what would have been million dollar websites and sell them for a thousand bucks a month. So yes, I came up with Squarespace in 2000 and I raised like three quarters million dollars. I was just about to close a $2 million round when the NASDAQ crashed in 2000, sold the business to another company in New York. And it was great. I got to write software and run a team that built over 400 custom web applications over the course of about two years. So I had a great time, but 
the business that bought me went out of business and I went back to the UK for a while and really started studying domain specific languages and how you could like write code that would write code. Did that for a while, came back to the States, got a visa, ran engineering at General Assembly, uh, a boot camp which helps people to, to learn how to program and, and design and other skills. Then I worked for GitHub and a number of other companies, did a couple other startups. It's funny because I have built engineering teams, I've written software. Uh, these days, I'm a party planner and an ad salesman. <laughs> so I run this community for senior engineering leaders like uh, VP of engineering, CTO, head of engineering, and director level and above. And we run seven summits a year around the US, one a year in London starting later this year. And it's a place where engineering leaders can connect with and learn from their peers. So I spend most of my life actually stalking and spamming people on LinkedIn and building communities. But the magical thing about this is I finally get paid what I need to make a living to write my own software. So I'm actually writing software to automate the conference business and to scale my ability to impact and to, to build community for engineering leaders. That's so fantastic. I mean, I, there's so many things to, to dive in there. The, the last thing you said really resonates with me. So I want to put a pin on that because I've had some similar thoughts around that and would love to dive in more around how you're helping build out the next generation of engineering leaders. But I, I would be remiss for our listeners if I didn't go back to that, that very first job title, which just stands out, you know, okay, I, I want to talk a little bit about the quit three months early a little bit more, but then you went and started a private practice as a psychotherapist. Like what was that all about? And like, what led you into that? Because you have a tech degree and then you went and did this thing, and then you went back into tech. There's always been multiple areas that I've been passionate about. When I was 12, I didn't happen to be super religious, but I almost went to a cathedral school because I used to sing in a church choir and write music and play violin and piano and guitar and clarinet and a bunch of other things. So I was really passionate about music. But even at 12, I realized I didn't want to try to make a living as a session musician, and I probably wasn't going to make it in the top 10. So even though music is still something I'm deeply in love with, I'd made the decision not to try to make a living out of that. When I moved from that, I, I got super excited about like physics and mathematics and electronics and stuff like that. And I mean, I was good enough to get a degree in it, not necessarily, but I, probably I would have never been good enough. I had friends who read, you know, pure mathematics at Oxford, and I, I was never going to be one of those people. So I love technology and I had a lot of fun doing, doing the degree in engineering, but I wanted to try something different. I was also fascinated by people and communications and communities and engagement. And psychotherapy seemed to me a fascinating way to engage with people and to help them to make their lives better. So it was really good to spend a little bit of time doing that. My joke was always I gave up psychotherapy because I, I didn't want to hang out with crazy people. No malice intended there. But what, what I wanted to do was help people who were performing well in their life to become phenomenal. And what I actually ended up doing was helping people who were unhappy in their life become just a little less unhappy. And while I really enjoyed changing or helping those people to decide to change their own lives. I was really just facilitating the process. I didn't see scale. I didn't see great. So I can do this for 20 clients a week. How do I do it for 200, 2000, 20,000? And so I usually move on from a particular part of my career when I realize that it's so much fun. I love it. But for me, it doesn't give that opportunity to scale 
the impact I'm having. But so I'm just curious, like, I mean, you can just put out your welcome mat in the UK back in those days? It was fairly straightforward. I, I did a couple of trainings. I trained in something called neuro-linguistic programming and Ericksonian hypnotherapy. It was a kind of a cognitive behavioral approach. The underlying hypothesis was it doesn't much matter what happened in your childhood. I mean, that may or may not impact who you are. What I want to know is what behavioral change do you want? So the way that I worked with clients and said, look, we're going to have between three and five sessions. Uh, at the end of that time, you're going to give me some money and I will give all of it back to you if you don't get the specific behavioral outcome that you want from those sessions. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's funny on this show, NLP has a whole different meaning than the NLP you're talking about there. Absolutely. So I was very lucky way later in my career. I was at Flatiron School, which is uh, just this phenomenal boot camp for people who wanted to change their lives and become programmers and designers and, and computer security professionals. And I got to actually launch their online data science program, which was great. So I got to work with a team of very experienced data scientists. And I'm sorry you can't see it, but I've got a bookshelf full of data science books behind me because I was like desperately trying to like, what's maximum likelihood estimation and how do I teach central limit theorem? So I was desperately trying to figure out all that stuff. Luckily, I managed to hire some instructors who knew a lot more than me before the students got ahead of me in my reading. But yeah. that, that was a lot of fun. So I, I like both types of NLP. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think you're probably the first guest who's uh, uttered those words. So that, that's great. I mean, you know, one thing that strikes me, Peter, across much of your career, you know, the words founder, CEO, CTO resonate. Where did that entrepreneurial and leadership spirit come from, if you will. You know, it sounds like, you know, like you were pretty curious as a child. So, you know, you liked a lot of different things. And I'm curious, how did the desire to start up, to found, come forward as you as you got into your career? It's a great question. I didn't have a lot of like super strong mentors or resources. I was the first in my family who'd gone to college. My dad died when I was super young. My mom was super supportive, but you know, she was working in an administrative job and trying to balance that with being a single mom. And if I had been an American citizen and maybe had some some other background, I think I would have had a very different career path. I would have probably moved to Silicon Valley as soon as I could, got some kind of job with two or three early stage tech startups, learned what they were doing wrong, and then taken a run at raising some capital and doing it myself. As it was though, I didn't see opportunities in front of me. There was the ability to become an electronic engineer and work for a big aerospace or defense contractor, and that wasn't wildly appealing. And so I didn't know how to get a job. I was looking at impact and changing the world, as I think everyone wants to at 21. I like was sending unsolicited marketing pamphlets to Greenpeace to try to persuade them that I'd be like this great copywriter and designer. I'm an okay copywriter. I'm a horrible designer. So I never heard back from it. So I didn't see that anyone else was going to give me a chance. So I'm like, I'm just going to start things and maybe one of them will work out. Here you are today. I mean, obviously some of them have worked out. So I'm kind of curious, you know, you hit on something that is intrinsic to being a founder, which I've experienced myself and that it, it is a roller coaster of a ride. What have been some of the key inflection points, some of the highs, some of the lows of being a founder, being an entrepreneur? The great thing is that when I look back on my life, there's things I probably did badly. There's things I could absolutely be more successful at or kinder at or more thoughtful at or more balanced at. But I've lived my life my way. I'm very, very happy kind of looking back and saying, 
I don't have regrets. There are things I could have done better, but no regrets. So, so that's absolutely the high point. The low point is I spent a huge amount of my life, you know, I was working 100, 120 hour weeks for a very long time and I didn't have as balanced a life. It's way more stressful. I remember getting a, a job. I've only had, I guess, three or four jobs, like actual full-time W-2 paid jobs in my life. I just turned 50. So uh, most of my time I've been doing my own thing. I kind of thought I'd retired because somebody paid me every month. I only had to work 40 or 50 hours a week. And I just had to meet expectations. I'm like, my God, this is what retirement feels like. So it was lovely to retire for a while. And I was very lucky that I got to retire at General Assembly, at Flatiron School. But now I'm, I'm back building my own thing again. And and, and I'm ready. I did love the impact, the being part of something bigger. You know, I've not done horribly, but I've never built anything terribly successful. The biggest company I've ever had is 25 employees. The most I've ever raised has been a million dollars a couple of times. So Elon Musk has nothing to worry about. I, I'm not coming up in his rearview mirror of his Tesla. But at the same time, I've really enjoyed the process of being able to, to build and direct things. And, and to, so really, I think for me, the high point is that absolute freedom. The, the downside is it's stressful and it's hard to have a balanced life. I think it's also though important to, to distinguish the kind of startup that you're trying to build. Because I spent a lot of time where, you know, a couple of times around I raised VC money and it was, you know, 500 million or bust, right? It was like, let's build something substantial. Right now, I love what I do. I'm building a community for people that I really like. I'm improving best practices for engineering leaders because they're the pointy-haired bosses. And maybe if they don't suck, then maybe engineers will be happier. If software is really eating the world, maybe we can build better software that eats it in a better way. So I love what I'm doing. But in the scheme of things, it's a podunk little business. And I'm very happy that it gives me the time to engage with my family and with other pursuits. And that it, it's unusual now for me to put in more than 50, 55 hours in a week. And I just love that. And that's beautiful. I mean, I think there's so much said in this world in software around, you know, building the unicorn and hyperscaling. And there's just a lot of really nice lifestyle businesses you can carve out in software and in this space that you can ride for a long time and then move on to the next thing. I really love too. like, I want to highlight for our listeners that concept you hit on of your career kind of, I don't want to use the word ebb and flow because sometimes that feels like it's perhaps reductionist, like one is a negative and the other is a positive. And I don't think it's that, that's not what you're trying to highlight. But, you know, most people, I think when they think about their career, they just think is this linear up and to the right thing. And there's a time and place for all of these different approaches. It's going to sound like a song from the 60s or whatever, but there's a time to start up and there's a time to retire. I, absolutely. And it's important. I think it's important to realize that it's not so much about career design. It's about life design. It's about saying at some point in time, you know, I'm going to get cremated. There's going to be a gravestone with my name on it. Just before that, what do I want to look back and say, that was how I wanted it to be? Don't get me wrong, there's been plenty of times in my life where I'm like, that's great, but I can't pay rent next month, so let me hustle. There are times where you're taking care of sick relatives, where you can't afford rent, where you can't afford car payments, and you kind of just put your head down and get through those times. But once you have that little bit of breathing room, and I think if you keep investing in learning, in improving your skills, and improving your aptitudes and capabilities, 
at some point in time, my mom always used to say it's like climbing a, a greasy pole. Eventually the grease just wears off and you can get up the damn thing. Once you get that little bit of space, it's important to take a step at back and say, so do I just want to run bigger and bigger companies? Do I just want to make more and more money? Do I just want to have a bigger and bigger impact? Do I, I want to have hobbies? Do I want to have family? Do I want to have personal relationships? What life do I want to design and how can I take small concrete steps today towards building the life that I want, not just the resume that looks impressive. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, and I think tying some of these things together, one of the beautiful things I think that kind of I see as an arc through your narrative, through your career is this teaching and helping people learn, whether it's the training classes you did early through to leading these boot camp organizations like General Assembly, Flatiron, to now what you're doing with CTO Connection, et cetera. Was that always kind of a passion of wanting to help people learn and teach, or did you kind of grow into that as you saw the needs of the software world evolving and realizing that there's just this big gap in terms of the way we build teams, the way we think about you know, software engineering and individual contributor growth, et cetera? I've always been passionate about teaching. Uh, I mean, like when I was a kid, I wanted to be on stage. I'd like play my guitar at, you know, five at the local like camp where we'd go away for the summer and stuff like that. But as I grew up, I've always been passionate about teaching, about helping other people. And it, it ties back, I think, in a way to the, if I look at the underlying objective for the, the psychotherapy, it was to help people who are okay become great, people who are great to become phenomenal and to be some small part in that. And it turns out that providing people with, whenever you blend tech with something else, it, it almost like it becomes a superpower, right? If I'm like, I want to be a teacher, great. And, you know, in Kentucky, I'll probably make, you know, $22,000 a year doing that for a local school system. And much as that would be a, a wonderful thing to do in the world, that doesn't meet my financial contribution or other goals. But I'm like, wait a minute, I can teach and like, you know, stand up in front of people and tell a couple of jokes and get them to learn enough GitHub or Chef or Ruby or Redis or Groovy or whatever I was teaching at the time. And I would teach these full day training classes and I get to hang out with 20 or 30 passionate people, help them to level up in a particular skill that maybe they weren't so familiar with, given the blend of like the classroom learning and, you know, the best practices that I'd seen from, from professionals in the field. And, and it was just magical to help people to, to go on that journey and to engage with them that way. So I, I've always loved building communities and teaching. It's just a great way to kind of contribute, but also to make a living. Yeah, that's so true. And one of the things I always tell engineers, you know, one of the best things you can do in your career is go train people on your software or train people on some of these ideas, because not only do you help others learn, but the number of times I've been standing up in front of a class, giving a training and realized a better way to build my software I can't even keep track of anymore because, you know, it's that old saying of you got to teach it to really know it. And until you really know it, you don't really understand where it's broken. So it's almost like a, <laughs> two sides there that can really benefit. That's actually a really important distinction. I would be a horrible teacher on an ongoing basis. Like even in a boot camp, I taught evening classes for General Assembly. I taught part of one of their first web development immersive. I helped to teach a data science class online for Flatiron School. I love to teach something because it helps me to learn it. And, and I'm also super passionate about learning new things. 
once I've learned it, I could probably teach the same class like three to five times. But then there's some point in time where I'm like, okay, I know this. I know when the laugh lines are going to be. I know how to order it. I know what the first seven questions are going to be and probably which person in the room is going to ask them. You get to the point where you just know it. And then for me, I lose the spark. I lose the energy. So I love building, teaching organizations, but I'd be a, a horrible like long-term boot camp instructor for me it would just burn me out yeah well the the key is to go overseas and try to give the same talk because none of the laugh lines will work in other countries so i was actually presenting in shanghai for qcon and it was really weird because firstly it was the first time i presented to there must have been at least three thousand people in the room it was you know huge but then the, the second thing was I would give the, the, the talk, you know, these little jokes. It was modified based on something I'd, I'd given a few times in the States. And I'd let the joke land and you, you usually wait a second or two for it to land. And there was nothing. So I'd like, okay, I guess it just culturally didn't land. And then I start saying the next thing and then everyone laughs. Turns out simultaneous translation, there was about a three second delay. And it was really hard to figure out how to time it that you're not waiting like five seconds for, okay, guys, it's time to laugh now. So it actually really is, is hard to do that in, in other cultures, especially if they don't speak English. And the dirty little secret there, Peter, is the translator probably said, okay, now laugh. I know I've had that experience. So, and, and, you know, like you said, it's just because you, you have certain idioms in your native language or where you're most used to speaking and they just, don't always land. That was a big eye opener for me when I first went to Europe. Oh, hey, this joke I tell in America, it doesn't work here. And then you're like, oh yeah, duh. That's because it's not a thing here. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I want to pull back on something you said earlier that fascinating me was that you move on when you feel like you can't reach the next level of scale that you're after. Or maybe I'm misquoting you there, but I think that's the gist of it. Let's say I'm tutoring somebody. I mean, it's wonderful just to like connect with somebody. Maybe they're not super experienced in software and I'm helping them to get comfortable with test driving their code. So one example, one of the people we hired at Flatiron School was one of our graduates, phenomenal individual, but he hadn't learned a bunch of TDD. And I'm like, great. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work on this thing called the instruct trap that we're going to use to keep track and manage our internal instructional resources. And we're going to test drive it. And it was awesome because I got to kind of tutor him one-on-one. -on -one. And there I got the leverage because he was helping me to write more software, which was helping me to manage. I mean, by the end, we had a, a team of 50 of various types of instructors and educational coaches and, and others. So it was giving me the scale. But if I was just tutoring somebody one-on-one, -on -one, I'm like, that's great. But how do I impact more people? Well, it's okay, so now I'm going to shoot a video. But then there's the trade-off because, of course, with video, you have less impact on each individual and you're not sure if they're understanding. So it's always saying, how can I scale the impact that I have? And it's why I keep going in circles between writing code and leading engineering teams. Right now, one of the most exciting things for me about CTO Connection, it's not the sponsors, it's not the summits. It's great to learn from the speakers and attend the community, but it's the fact that I'm going to get 15 to 20 hours a week to write a little Rails app to automate a lot of the workflow for the business and to hopefully build a community where engineering leaders can really kind of connect in person, but then sustain that online. And it's great because my resume would not give me a job as a programmer. You see psychotherapist and DevRel and all these other things, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what you should be doing, but typing on a computer is not necessarily one of the things we're going to pay you to do. So I probably couldn't get a job as a programmer, but now I can pay myself to do that. But I know that in six months, 
I'm going to love it, but then I'm going to start to get frustrated by the fact that, you know, I'm having to refactor and I have to go rewrite, you know, a bunch of acceptance tests and there's some kind of DevOpsy thing that's being frustrating or I'm having trouble with a, a, a queue system or, you know, whatever it is. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to start to hire people to do that. And then I'm sure I'll build a team, then they'll write the software, then I'm going to get really frustrated that I can't write the code myself. It's that tough balance between loving to code, but wanting to maximize my impact. And I know that in six months or a year, I'm going to be back there again. Well, so that's perhaps a good segue. You know, tell us a bit more about CTO Connection. I think there's CTO School, there's the CTO Clubs. I mean, you've kind of built up this brand around engineering leadership. You know, what was the inspiration? And then who's the audience and how best can people learn there? You know, how best for our guests or our listeners to engage? Sure. So the, the very first inspiration, uh, there's a guy called Charlie O'Donnell, who's an early stage venture capitalist in New York City. And he was working with Jim Barmash and they created something called the CTO School back in, I think, 2010. And the idea was, hey, we've got all these tech startups just starting to pop up in New York City and we've got nobody to lead them. We've got no experienced engineering leaders because they're all busy, you know, working at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and getting paid insane amounts of money. How can we build the next generation of engineering leaders? And they invited me to give one presentation in a full series of, of presentations, so a kind of semester-long experience. I did that for, I think, one or two years. And at the end of the second year, I'm like, dude, this is great, but we're trying to figure out how to build engineering teams year round. This needs to be a monthly meetup. So Gene, myself, Kurt Schrader, who at the time was VP of engineering at Intent Media. Now he's the founder of Clubhouse Software, uh, basically Jira that doesn't suck. It's great software if you haven't played with it. And then Liz Crawford, who at the time was the VP of engineering or CTO, sorry, Liz, at Birchbox. I can't remember which title she had. Uh, she's now down in Sydney doing, doing tech things there back home. And the four of us got together and created this kind of not-for-profit monthly get-together where about 100 people who either were engineering leaders or wanted to be could connect. And Jim Barmash still does a wonderful job of running that on a monthly basis. And it's great, but because it was not-for-profit, we could only put so much time in. We all had day jobs. So back in 2014, I was lucky enough to be a member of a CTO club in New York and lots of super experienced people. And I just wanted to learn to become a better engineering leader. Some of them would have coffee or lunch with me, but others were like, dude, I'm busy. You know, I'm the CTO of fast growth tech startup. So I'm like, fine. If I put 100 people in the room then, would you tell me your story? And they all said yes. So three weeks later, the inaugural New York CTO Summit happened uh, just south of Midtown in the back of an Indian restaurant. And we had like 110 attendees, 120 attendees, and the CTOs of like Warby Parker. And I think we had uh, Elliot from MongoDB might have been there that one. It was this amazing lineup. And since then, I ran as a hobby 27 of the CTO summits. And then I was finally let go as part of the WeWork craziness. Flatiron School and WeWork had to cut back, obviously, recently. So as of November of 2019, I started working on the CTO summits as a full-time thing. Somebody wants to find out more at ctoconnection.com, but it's primarily for people who are direct level or higher and who want to connect with their peers. There will eventually be a kind of TNG, like the next generation for individual contributors, leads and managers who want to learn more about that kind of career path. But realistically, I'm probably six to nine months out from creating that content. 
it's so needed. I mean, I see this every day, just in my own life. I see it in, you know, across a number of places where I've hired managers, et cetera. There's so many aspects that go into this. You know, I had Camille Fournier on episode four. She talked about the manager's path, which is such a great resource, but it's still just a book. And then, you know, to for you to tie in some of these other ongoing connections, I think is is such a needed part of this field. So hat tip to you on that. Thanks. It's really interesting seeing Camille is awesome. And I was lucky enough that she presented at a couple of the summits in New York. Uh, but what was great is that I've seen, I don't know, 400, 450 of these presentations now. And I'm kind of getting to the point where somebody's like, how should I structure my team? How do I make my team more inclusive? How do I improve the diversity in my hiring pipeline? How do I think about when to go from a monolith to a microservice? How do I think about organizing my support team? How do I build a data science team? And let me just point you to the video. It's like one of the taglines, but the answers are out there. They're just not evenly distributed. And it's really great to kind of have that worth of knowledge. Now I'm just figuring out how I can codify it and make it more accessible to more people. I'm curious then, Peter, you know, you've been the CTO for a number of years and you've obviously learned from a lot of great CTOs just by the fact that you've been in, in New York and you have access to this incredible club there. What are one or two really strong lessons that have emerged for you over the years in terms of being in this role and, and being successful at it? Firstly, I think it's important to distinguish there are, I, I think, three different levels. And they're not levels like getting a promotion. They're levels like changing your job entirely. In the first, you're an individual contributor, and your job is to write code, right? You deliver software that adds value. In the second role, you move into a manager position, and your job is to build people. It's to do whatever it takes to help your team to succeed. And then finally, once you move to a director level or higher, if you choose to do that, you're building organizations. And interestingly, it ties in in many ways, a lot of the, the kind of logical thinking and planning ties in. There's a lot more commonality between being, say, a VP of engineering, individual contributor, and being a manager is almost something totally different because it's much more about helping your team be as successful as possible. So, so the first thing I'd say is that those are three different careers. And it's important to realize, I think a lot of companies are doing a much better job of creating technical tracks now that don't just become a manager just because, or a director just because. Do it if you like the tasks you're going to be performing, not just because of the title that you're going to get. The, the other things I'd say is anyone who moves into either management or, or organization development will find out pretty quickly. The hard part isn't the software. It's not the architecture. It's the people. It's primarily about how do you do a job of creating a space where amazing, diverse people want to come together and bring their whole self to work. And then the final thing I'd say is you can't do it alone. I remember even in the early days when I was writing code, I would have a buddy and I would like do database queries when they got stuck and they would write jQuery for me when I got stuck with a JavaScript because I at least at that time didn't feel that I could know it all. And especially when you're, you're building and managing engineering teams, it's important to build a strong community. However you do that, because those are the people that will be there for you. You can't go to your boss and say, I don't know how to do it, or they'll fire you. You can't go to the people who report to you and say, I don't know how to do it, or I'm scared, or I'm overwhelmed, or they'll quit and find another company. So somehow you need to have some kind of release valve, a set of people that you can just be honest and 
they may or may not help you to solve the problems, but they will certainly have been through similar things. So, so build your tribe, build your community. Yeah, that's interesting. Although I will, uh, I'll challenge you a little bit because I think you can go to your boss and your team. There's a way to do that. There absolutely is. But try going to the team and saying, so good news, I'm keeping 40 of the 60 of you. Any idea how we're going to pick who the 20 are? It's just not the conversation they're going to want to engage with uh, constructively in, in most organizations. For sure. No, that, that's exactly right. There are certain conversations, you know, the HR conversations, the legal conversations, you know, especially in this day and age of modern CTO. And this is perhaps the next question. It's evolved quite a bit. I think you kind of hit at it with this whole self when your whole team is bringing their whole self, right? That requires a level of engagement as a leader that I think was different from, say, 20 years ago. And so I'm kind of curious, how do you think about the role evolving going forward? It's a great question. And the, the challenge with a title like CTO, for example, uh, I was speaking with one of the guests on the CTO Connection podcast, and they said, you know, my job as the co-founder and CTO is to do the stuff that's not getting done, the stuff that falls through the cracks. And so depending upon the size and type of organization, there are so many different types of engineering leaders. Sometimes they map to traditional roles. The VP of engineering is more known for making sure the trains run on time, right? It's like, do we have a consistent hiring process and career ladders? Do we have well-structured teams? Do we have good DevOps processes? Do we just kind of have everything working as a well-oiled machine? But for a CTO, it's kind of all over the place. Some of them are like deep technical leaders that simply solve problems that others couldn't, that attracts talent to them. Others, it, it's all about being in the community and telling the technical story and giving credibility to your sales organization. In others, it's absolutely a political and bureaucratic role that's primarily about how can I negotiate, you know, some more funds for my organization so that we can do the things necessary to keep this, this larger business running. So I, I think the important thing as a CTO is to really focus on what do you want to do and how can you hire for the things that you're not passionate about or great at and kind of fill in those gaps. So true. And then I think the evolution then is just software is getting ever more complex, right? And so being able to build out that well-rounded team, I think is to your point where a lot of the evolving skill set lays. Unless, of course, you know, there's always, like you said, there's that one CTO path that is like, hey, go be the field evangelist. You're effectively a field CTO. You know, you're talking with customers, you're sharing vision, you're turning business into tech and vice versa. But for the, the rest of those roles you described, it really is becoming a much more complex beast as all the bits of software get so much harder. You mentioned earlier, you didn't have some early childhood mentoring and kind of, you know, or at least in the early stages. So you went on your own, but you know, the show is developmental and I'm kind of curious, you know, spend a moment talking about some mentors you have had as you've gotten into this. I imagine through the CTO school and some of these other places that you've come across people who have been particularly helpful Maybe give them a shout out, but more importantly, like talk about some of the things you've learned from these mentors. That's a really good question. I would say that I had one regret. It's that while I, I love to be independent, which I don't think is in itself a bad thing, I have not taken advantage 
of the ability to learn from other people as much as I could. I think I would have been much more successful, much more quickly if I had taken on, a, I could have mentor relationship as a mentee. And it's something that I've really never done on a consistent basis. And I think it's, it's probably one of my few regrets looking back on the way that I've structured my career. I, so I've been lucky enough to learn many things from many individuals, but I really haven't built that kind of ongoing relationship. My career is much slower because I didn't take the time to figure out who could I learn from. I appreciate the honesty. I've often felt that way as well. I've had some guests on the show who were right from day one, explicitly their whole job choice was geared around who could they go learn from. Whereas, especially early on in my career, it was very much what tech could I work on? And so I think you hit on something that's really interesting there. And that awareness is something our, our listeners can, you know, at the end of the day, decide for themselves. But you know, there's, there's different ways of learning from people and, and it doesn't always have to be exactly a mentor, but it can be. And there's, there's a path there. Well, then perhaps flip the script a little bit. And, you know, you've kind of hinted at this with a, a few things, but sum it all up and maybe what's your best career advice for somebody looking forward who, who perhaps wants to, they feel this streak of independence, if you will, like you do and how best to go forward. So the, the first thing I'd say is, I mean, obviously there are stages in your career. The first stage is just getting to a place where you can make rent. If you're at that stage, you know, maybe I'm looking at snow outside that probably needs shovel. Go, go shovel snow, dig ditches, like whatever it takes to make sure you're making rent. Once you get beyond that, I think it's a matter, especially if you're early in your career, the career paths that people talk about the opportunities that are going to exist for you in your career are wildly different and more diverse than the career opportunities that exist today. If somebody had told me 15 or 20 years ago that there was a job for people who could write software to go and tell stories at conferences and run meetups, I, I would have had no idea because the whole idea of kind of DevRel, developer relations, barely existed 20 years ago and certainly didn't have a name for it. There's going to continue to be this proliferation and explosion of opportunities. And I guess the piece of advice I would give is to try to become the intersection of two things. If you've got one skill, the problem is lots of other people have that skill and you become a commodity. Try to become the intersection of two skills that matter. If you can be a programmer, who can also give presentations, suddenly it's incredibly hard to find great DevRel professionals. So that immediately puts you in a strong place. So it's trying to find that unique combination of two things that allow you to differentiate. And it's not about looking at the job postings. It's about building a community and a network and the relationships that will allow you to have people build jobs for you. To give you just one specific example, so raise some money, built an enterprise training company that was going to automate mentorship, Wheelhouse. It was a wonderful company, went out of business, crashed and burned. So I took care of the investors, the employees, and I'm like, okay, what do I do now? I'm moving from New York City to Boulder in like two months. I don't have a job. I don't have much money in the bank. What am I going to do? And so I sent an email to 25 friends like, look, I want to stay in the developer education space, probably around the boot camp end because I've just done an enterprise play. I want to work in either New York or San Francisco, live in Boulder, and only got on a plane twice a year. Any ideas? 
believe me, I had a list of 25, I had a list of 250, and I had a list of 2,500 people that I was going to week one, week two, week three, send that same message to. So luckily enough, a number of companies offered me something and I was very lucky to get to build the online instruction team for Flatiron School. They didn't have a job for online instruction or remote, but they built it around what they thought I could bring to the company. So I guess the one final piece I'd throw it in is build a, a resume, but find something you can do in public, whether it's giving presentations, whether it's writing articles on Medium, whether it's contributing code to an up and coming open source project, find something that will make you a name, not a number. And then people will build a job around you rather than you trying to find a job that you might be able to put up with. I think you just described my approach to my career and it's worked out. So, uh, you know, here we are, but to reflect back a couple of key takeaways I took there, the, the name and not a number piece for sure, but also this like be good at two things that you can combine together to differentiate yourself. That polyspecifist, I think I've heard that role called the Josh Wills quote of a data scientist is somebody who's a better programmer than most statisticians and a better statistician than most programmers. Peter, so great to have you on the show. Final question. I know you gave some of these links earlier, but put them all in one place. Where can our listeners best follow you, learn more about you, track you on social media, go to CTO Summit? What are, what are all the best places to find you? I think two places would, would cover most everything. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. And if you search for Peter Bell, you should find me there. At Peter Bell, just one word on Twitter, or ctoconnection.com which is the website for the business. Fantastic. We'll be sure to link those up in our show notes. Peter, thank you again so much for joining us. I know uh, you've got a busy day and busy work ahead of you in terms of launching your next thing. So it's really great to have you on the show. Appreciate you coming. Grant, thank you so much. And thank you so much for doing this. It's so important to, to have a community for people thinking about how can they build their careers in technology. So I really love the podcast and thanks for inviting me to be a guest. Oh, that's great to hear, Peter. I appreciate those kind words so much. Thank you. Thank you, as always, to our listeners for taking the time to listen. If you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. You can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes as well as find other content on careers and technology. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. If you have any feedback on this episode or any episode, or you'd like to be a guest, drop us an email at podcasts at developmentor.com. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move that one step closer to finding your path.